second. Yeah, that's probably good. good. Is it loud enough? It's not even on. Hare Krishna. Doesn't sound very loud. Okay. Well, Hare Krishna, thank you so much um, for all of you being here. I'm very, very happy to be in Tucson. This is my second time here in the last couple of years, and uh, it's always a wonderful experience for me with the uh, devotees here in such a nice temple. Um, because we have a fairly short time for class here, I'll not chant anymore. We've already had some nice chanting, and uh, get right into our topic. I chose this topic of why do we have uh, do we have free will. Because this is something that has been debated in philosophy and by religionists for centuries. And it's very critical to our understanding of who we really are and how we operate within this world, the difficulties and struggles we have in this world, and what is our relationship with God. So there's a lot of elements that are here within the, this question. I wanted to start by giving a little flavor of some of the divergent opinions there are on this topic throughout history. It's interesting that as I was looking for these some of these quotes, it seems as though there are two camps. Those who we call determinists, who say there's really no free will, everything's pretty much determined, you know, you're controlled by your body, your destiny, you know, and most of these people tend to be the scientists. And they have these opinions that um, nothing is really going on except the chemical combinations and uh, di different activities like this. And so there's what we think of as free will or consciousness and all of these things are really just illusory or just something that we just create and make up to make us feel better. Albert Einstein said, now he had some good things to say. Unfortunately, this was not one of his better ones. <laughs> he said, everything is determined the beginning as well as the end, by forces over which we have no control. Human beings, vegetables, or cosmic dust, we all dance to a, to a mysterious tune intoned in the distance by an invisible piper. And Stephen Hawking, a well-known atheistic scientist said, the initial configuration of the universe may have been chosen by God or it may have itself been determined by the laws of science. In either case, it would seem that everything in the universe would then be determined by evolution according to laws of science, so it is difficult to see how we can be the masters of our own faith. Charles Darwin said, everything in nature is the result of fixed laws. Well, he's half right. Now, obviously, there are the laws of nature that Krishna has enacted that are here. And then Bertrand Russell, who was a famous philosopher and mathematician, said, the first dogma which I came to disbelieve was that of free will. It seemed to me that all notions of matter were determined by the laws of dynamics and could not therefore be influenced by human will. So that's kind of a grim view of, uh, of life, isn't it, that our scientists give us? Now it's interesting, some of the contrasts <laughs> I found with some of the other thinkers who were on the other side tended to be more from religious traditions, religious backgrounds. For instance, C.S. Lewis, a very famous uh, author, Narnia books like that, he was a, also a uh, Christian philosopher said, free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. So part of the issue is if you believe in God, then how do you reconcile evil in the world? And that's where the idea of free will comes into the, uh, theological thinking. In other words, it says because there is some free will, that there is the potential for evil or for bad acts to happen, not necessarily by the design of God. 
Buddha said, no one saves us but ourselves, we ourselves must walk the path. In other words, we have some control over our destiny, over our path. And this, and I thought this was interesting. This was by Nehru, actually, the first prime minister of India, who was Hindu. And he explains a very short little sutra here that describes free will and its limitations. He said, life is like a game of cards. The hand you are dealt with is determinism. The way you play it is free will. Which is interesting because we all have a certain body and mind that we're born into. Due to our past karma, I've been given this particular body, and after a certain number of years, you realize you're never going to be the next great basketball star, or there's certain things that you just are, you're limited. So if there is free will, there's certainly limitations on that free will. But on the other hand, as you said, the way that we play that hand that we're dealt with, that's up to us. That's within our free will. And we will see, as we look at the Vedic understanding, isn't that uh, the title of this lecture series is supposed to be the Vedic understanding or something? I forget what it said on the sign out there. Anyway, this is what the Vedas tell us on this topic. So turning to the Bhagavad Gita, very nice verse, uh, chapter 15, verse 7. This is Krishna speaking. He doesn't speak directly about free will, but he sets up the understanding of who we are as living entities in such a way that Srila Prabhupada expands upon that and discusses free will in the purport. So Krishna says, the living entity, he says, Mamayvangsho jiva loke jiva bhuta sanatana manakshastan indriyani prakritisani karshati. The living entities in this conditioned world are my eternal, fragmental parts. Due to conditioned life, they're struggling very hard with the six senses, which include the mind. So Srila Prabhupada's purport says, I'm just going to read part of the purport. It's quite long. In this verse, the identity of the living being is clearly given. The living entity is the fragmental part and parcel of the Supreme Lord eternally. It is not that he assumes individuality in his conditional life and then his liberated state becomes one with the Supreme Lord. He is eternally fragmented. It is clearly said, sanatana. So sanatana means eternally and um, that they are eternal parts. My vangsho, amksha is a part. According to the Vedic version, the Supreme Lord manifests and expands in innumerable expansions, of which the primary expansions are called Vishnu Tattva. That means that's God's own energy, his own expansions. Just like we see the different forms of Krishna on the altar, the forms of Radha and Krishna, the forms of Lord Chaitanya, these are what we call Vishnu, uh, expand, Vishnu Tattva expansions. And the secondary expansions are called the living entities, that's us, the jiva, or the atma, the soul, the self, many different ways it's described. The separated expansions, the living entities, are eternally servitors. The personal expansions of the Supreme Person Godhead, the individual identities of Godhead are always present. Similarly, the separated expansions of living entities have their identity. As fragmental part and parcel of the Supreme Lord, the living entity has fragmental portions of his qualities. So in other words, Prabhupada is saying that because we are parts of God, we have small portions of his qualities. So we are actually qualitatively equal to God, but quantitatively much different. Krishna, God is very great, and we are very small. 
but we do have portions of his energies and his qualities. So, the living in, uh, living into his fragmental portions of his qualities, of which independence is one. Krishna is called Svarat, independent. So the living entity is also independent. Prabhupada says, every living entity as an individual soul has his personal individuality and a minute form of independence. That's free will. So we have that small quantity, a minute amount of independence or free will. Then, Prabhupada says, there's two ways that free will can manifest. By misuse of that independence, one becomes a conditioned soul. And by the proper use of independence, he is always liberated or free. In either case, he is qualitatively eternal, as the Supreme Lord is. In his liberated state, he is freed from material condition, and he is under the engagement of transcendental service unto the Lord. But in his conditioned life, he is dominated by the material modes of nature, and he forgets the transcendental loving service of the Lord. As a result, he has to struggle very hard to maintain his existence in this material world. Jai Prabhupada. Om Gyanat Timrandisha Gananjana Salakaya Chaksuranitamina Tazma Shrigavenama Panchikalpa Thrivishcha Kripasindu Devicha Patitano Pavne Bhavashivanamaha. So we're talking about the nature of the self, the nature of the Atma. And Prabhupada is saying here that because God possesses independence and free will, so do, so do we, the Atma or the Jiva, the spirit soul. As a part of the Lord, we possess similar qualities. But where Krishna has full, unfettered free will, the Jiva has smaller amounts of independence. We have, as Prabhupada says here, a minute amount of independence. Still we have independence, but there are limitations on that. It's also important to understand here that we have greater freedom when we are in our true spiritual state and less so in a conditioned state. Sometimes people think, we hear this word like surrendering to God and they say, I don't want to surrender. I don't want to surrender my freedom. I want to do what I want to be able to do. I want to be free. I don't want to surrender to some religion. But actually it's being described here, it's the opposite. We're actually very much controlled and conditioned while we're in this material world. You know, there's so many uh, things that we have no control over. But if one actually takes up to spiritual life and one becomes free from all of this material conditioning and understands one's true spiritual nature and relationship to God, then he is actually free. That's kind of the I irony. We have to surrender to become free. So. This is the greater freedom in a spiritual state because right now we are very heavily influenced by the modes of nature. Prophet explains this a little more in the purport to Srimad Bhagavatam 7.7.19. He says, therefore the living entities are qualitatively the same as the Supreme Personality of Godhead, who is the leader, the supreme amongst all living entities. Because the living entities are part or sample of God, their qualities are not different from that of the Supreme Lord. The living entities have the same qualities as the Lord, just as a drop of seawater is composed of the same chemicals as the great sea itself. Thus there is oneness in quality, but difference in quantity. So, in other words, if you took a sample of seawater and you put the water in your hand, it would have the same chemical composition as the whole ocean. 
right? The water that's there in the palm of your hand. But you could say that I'm holding the whole ocean in my hand? No, because the quantity is very different. I have a small quantity, a small sample, and we can understand the ocean from the sample to some degree, in a limited degree. But we can never say that, that we, as small samples of the Supreme Lord, are equal in quantity. So let's understand a little bit more about the nature of the self. Self is sometimes called the Atma. There's a very nice book that has been recently translated uh, by Banu Swami. Um, he's translated what's called the Sandharvas of Jiva Goswami. There's, there's six books and they're very highly philosophical and technical. Jiva Goswami, who lived about 500 years ago, is one of the greatest Vaishnav scholars in history, uh, one of the greatest scholars of Krishna consciousness. So one of the books he wrote was called, it's called the Paramatma Sandharva. Paramatma is the super soul, the Lord is in the heart, and the Atma is the jiva or the living entity, the self or the soul who is also situated in the heart. So within the heart we have the self and we have the super soul, Krishna, Paramatma. So in this work, obviously the Paramatma is described, but the first half or two thirds of the book really talks about the nature of the Atma, of the soul. And it's uh, very illuminating because um, there are eternal qualities of the Atma, of us, the self, that are described. We are all individual. We are individual living entities. We have a separate consciousness from all other jivas, right? It's not that we merge into some kind of mass. We all have that separate consciousness and, in, and individuality. So the Atma is conscious, but also is aware, but also self-aware. So in other words, there's self-awareness as well. It's not just sort of a consciousness of everything, but it's also being, con being self-conscious of one's own existence. That's there as, an, as a part of the, of the Atma. And is energy. we have energies. We're sat, eternal, and chit, full of knowledge and awareness. So we're aware of everything around us in the world. We're aware of ourselves. We're aware of other living entities. The Atma also pervades the body and gives consciousness to the body. Now, we often say, and you've heard this, I'm sure, if you've ever attended uh, any single lecture in Krishna consciousness, that we're not the body, right? The soul is different than the body, but yet the soul is inhabiting these bodies, and the consciousness pervades the body. You wouldn't be able to think, you wouldn't be able to sense anything without the presence of the soul, right? When the soul leaves the body, what do you have? You have a dead body, it's insentient, that, you know, that has no senses, that has no thought processes, nothing that's going on, basically. The soul is left. So it's only the presence of the soul that actually makes everything work. In fact, there's a nice verse in the Bhagavad Gita that says... Where is it? It's the 13th chapter. Okay. We'll find that one later. But basically, that the, um, the, the, the soul uh, permeates throughout the body, and all consciousness and awareness is, is within that body due to the presence of the soul. So, oh, it was right, I, sorry, right here. Bhagavad Gita 13.34. O son of Bharata, as the sun alone illuminates all of this universe, so does the living entity, one within the body, illuminate the entire body by consciousness. So that's, that's, one, that's the quality that one can perceive the soul, and that's consciousness. 
Because you're conscious, you're aware. That's the soul. That's how we can understand the presence of the soul. Now, the Atma is also uh, uh, an enjoyer. Another quality is Ananda, Satchit Ananda, and has desire. It's also described that the Atma is the doer and the cause of one's own action. The Brahma Sutra is quoted, the pure jiva has by nature a doer by his own shakti or energy, along with his senses. Like a carpenter, the jiva is the doer. Just as a carpenter uses an ax, the jiva, jiva, the atma, is a doer using his shakti or energy. The jiva is an agent. So this is all from the Paramatma Sandharva. And it's described because the jiva, because we are an actor, a doer, an enjoyer, this is the pure state of the soul. Therefore, the atma has volition or free will. So that volition or free will as an independent, as an actor and a doer is there inherently within the very foundational nature of the soul or the self. So we learn from the different Vedic literatures. Now, there's two ways that that activity can manifest. The active nature of the soul can manifest. It can, act, it can become active in its free state where the pure soul, the pure jiva, is in a spiritual state of loving relationship with God. That's the free state. Then there's what we call the conditioned state or conditioned activity of the soul. That's when we, the jiva, are in this material world and we're under the influence of the material modes of nature, passion, ignorance, and goodness. Um, we're subject to all of the suffering and miseries of the material world and subject to birth, death, disease, and old age, continual rebirth in the samsara, the cycle of birth and death in this material world. So that's the conditioned state. Now we can be in either one of those states. Why? Because the jiva is also called tatashta shakti. Krishna has different energies, and, and we, as one of his energies, are called tatashta. Now tatashta means marginal. The example probably gives a, 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 of, a mar, of marginal energy is like at the ocean. You're at the, you're, at, you're at the beach there and the water's coming in and where the water, when the waves come in, the tide comes in where the water touches the beach. When the tide is higher, this part is underwater and when the tide is lower, it's land. So is it land, is it water? It can be either. That's the marginal nature. It can become, it's land and then it's covered by the water. So we're in a, we are in a pure state, the pure soul, but that pure soul is never lost, but it can become covered by material energy. And that's what's all around us, material energy. We're here in this material world. So we become covered by the modes of nature in connection with property or material energy. Going back to the purport we read, Prabhupada said, every living entity as an individual soul has his personal individuality and minute independence. By misuse of that independence, one becomes a conditioned soul, and by proper use of independence, we are liberated. So of course, then the question might be, well, for free eternal beings, why are we suffering? Why don't, why don't we just make the right choice? Why are we suffering in this material world? You know, uh, it's a good question. And it's been asked by uh, great souls and sages throughout history. 
Sanatana Goswami, who was one of the six Goswamis, the immediate followers of Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu, who along with his brother Lord Nityananda are on our altar 500 years ago approximately, Sanatana Goswami came to Lord Chaitanya and he asked some questions. And first he said, people consider me a learned man. He was, he was brilliant, he spoke seven languages, he was like a you know, brilliant genius. And he was actually a great government official, but he renounced it all, he joined Lord Chaitanya, and he said, I am considered a learned man, but I don't even know my purpose in life. Who am I? Why am I suffering? He asked. And Lord Chaitanya begins his instructions with one of a very, very important verse kind of explains a lot of our philosophy. He said, Jivara Sarupoya, Krishnara Nichidas, Krishnara Tatashta Shakti, Beta Beta Prakash. It is the living entity's constitutional position to be an eternal servant of Krishna because he's the marginal energy of Krishna and a manifestation simultaneously one with and different from the Lord, like a molecular particle of sunshine or fire. Now that we could spent two classes on just describing that verse, but basically it is saying how the living entity is a part of God, how we are the same as God, but yet different. Beta Beta Prakash. Then he explains his energies, and then a few verses later in, in verse uh, 117, Majalila, 20th chapter, Krishna, Lord Chaitanya says, forgetting Krishna, the living entity has been attracted by the external feature from time immemorial. Therefore, the illusory energy, maya, gives him all kinds of misery in this material existence, samsara dukkha. So, in the verse we read from Bhagavad Gita 15.7, the last word was karshati. The word karshati means struggling. So the, the living entities are struggling in this material world. And now Lord Chaitanya is saying the same thing. We've been struggling in this material world since time immemorial. And that's because we have misused that independence, that free will, and made some bad choices, basically. Those bad choices have landed us in this material world, trying to forget God, trying to forget Krishna, and trying to enjoy in this material world. So we're trying to enjoy, but yet we often experience this great struggle for existence, uh, this karshati, because when we're in this conditioned state, our free will is largely suspended. It's very covered over. So we're controlled by the modes of nature, the laws of karma, natural laws, by our conditioning, by so many things, the body that we've been given, the mind that we've been given. And so we have some free will, but it's fairly controlled. It's quite curtailed. Now, of course, human beings do exhibit some free will depending upon their level of realization, depending upon you know, their consciousness. Now we see in animals, there's very little free will, right? Animals aren't really held accountable for their actions, right? If this nice white dog here does something that we don't want him to do, we may not want him to do it, but we don't really think, we don't blame him really. It's exactly like a dog, right? Whatever dogs do, that's what dogs do. So, you know, it's, um, they're not so much accountable. And they tend to act instinctively by natural laws in the body that they've been born into. But yet for human beings, there's an acknowledgement that there really is some free will and ability to make choice, right? Even in that, even in within our societies, every society actually holds people accountable. Because if we didn't have free will, how could you hold anyone accountable for a crime or anything else, right? 
anyone could do anything and say, I don't have free will, I'm not a, it's not my fault, I'm totally controlled, so can't blame me. And But yet, society doesn't really accept that. So we do hold people accountable for crimes. Also, if one believes in karma, reincarnation, how could one, how can God hold people accountable and give and hand out karmic reactions in your next body unless you had some choice in that? So we do. We have some accountability, some free will to make choices, and we enjoy or suffer the results of those choices. But we know that it's, they don't, but there are limitations. Free will's not absolute. It's not, for instance, children are not held as accountable, are they? If an eight-year-old commits a crime, you know, they're not treated like an adult because they don't have the developed consciousness to be able to fully exercise their will. And if one is mentally unfit, they may not be held accountable. They used to have this, I don't think they call it insanity anymore, but it used to be, you know, that was your plea. Well, I'm not, not guilty, you know, by due to insanity. In other words, I didn't have, I didn't know what I was doing. And yet, this, I mean, this has been modified in recent uh, law, but to some degree it's still there. And someone says, well, they really weren't, they weren't in a mental condition to be able to make a free choice and know what they were doing. So we can see how free will can be covered and can be curtailed in many, many instances. And for the average person, that, uh, that free will in this material world is limited. And we certainly have the ability to misuse free will, as Prabhupada talks about, and make bad decisions. We made an original bad decision. You know, uh, Krishna's talk about original sin. I guess we could say original bad decision, <laughs> original mistake. But it was a big one. That mistake was leaving Krishna, leaving the spiritual world, leaving our devotional service, which was our real position. That's what we call our constitutional position, our sanatan dharma is what it's called in Sanskrit. It means who we really are. Who we really are is the spirit soul who's in an eternal relationship with God. And that's a relationship of love. And when we are situated there, it is perfect. That is our perfect place, and we're happy. But somehow or another, we decided, eh, let me try something else. Let me try to be God. Let me be independent. Let me be the controller, the enjoyer of everything. And so we can see, to small degree or, less, or larger degree, this is how people are acting in the material world. I'm independent, I'm free, I can do what I want, I can enjoy what I want. You know, uh, many people think there are no consequences. And so, thus we struggle in the cycle of birth and death, repeated birth and death through the cycle of samsara. But despite that, there's always that desire to enjoy material life. Run out of time, quick story. I thought this was a great metaphor. Um, last year I went with my family, all wanted to get together, my, other, my material family, my brothers and parents and like that. And uh, so they went down to a place uh, south of Tampa, wherever down there. I don't know, I forget where it was exactly. Um, and, you know, it's just in the winter. It's a beautiful beach, nice weather, everything. We've got this nice place. And well, I'll go out on the, out on the beach. And I kind of start coughing. And pretty soon everyone starts coughing. And we're all coughing and choking. And there's a phenomenon there called the red tide. Ever heard of that? The red tide is an algae bloom that comes at certain times in certain years, and it gives off this toxic gas 
I mean, it kills a lot of fish. It kills, you know, wild. It's, apparently, it's very, very bad this year, the worst it's ever been. And it's killing, you know, like uh, manatees and all kinds of things. So here we are, you know, everyone's trying to enjoy this beautiful setting on the beach. And we're all sitting there choking. So we had to spend, you know, most of the time inside. You know, I thought it was kind of funny myself, you know, because it's a great metaphor for the material world. We're all trying to enjoy in this material world, you know, but the material energy looks very beautiful and it chokes us like the red tide in the end. <laughs> you know? So as we try to simply act on the desires of the body, the mind, the intelligence, the senses, we get increasingly implicated in karmic reactions and rebirth. And so, therefore, free will becomes largely lost, or at least very covered over. And as Srila Prabhupada says in 8.530, says, No one can overcome the Supreme Personality of God as a loser energy, which is so strong that it bewilders everyone, making one lose the sense to understand the aim of life. In other words, not only do we lose understanding of the purpose of life, we even lose the sense of wanting to try to understand the aim of life. So even even to ask those questions is missing. You know. But fortunately, fortunately for all of us, there is a solution. <laughs> Obviously, Krishna wants us to come back to him. Krishna wants us to make the right utilization of our free will and return to the spiritual world. And of course, that means that we have to give up our attachment to this material energy, and we have to, you know, but it's not a matter of just like some kind of dry renunciation, you know, you have to become a monk and you have to go live on the top of the Himalayas and give everything out, up. No, one simply needs to transform one's energies, desires, one's purpose from material to spiritual. Not quite that easy, easier said than done, as they say. But it, what it means is that we utilize everything that we have in this material world in Krishna's service. And that begins by reconnecting with Krishna. And the most important way in this age of Kali that we're in now is through what's called Sankirtan Jagya, the chanting of the holy name. So that's why we are chanting Hare Krishna. And in that way, we are reconnecting to Krishna. We are reestablishing that spiritual relationship with Krishna. And as that spiritual relationship begins to develop, we are actually becoming free. As we are surrendering to Krishna, we are becoming free. We're becoming free of the material modes of nature. We're becoming free of the cycle of birth and death. And we're able to understand our real free uh, nature of the soul, which is in perfect relationship with God. Here's an example better end quickly, of the position of the pure soul and the freedom that the pure soul understands. This is from the Srimad Bhagavatam 1638. It's the story of Narada Muni. Sutta Goswami said, Thus addressing Vyasadeva, Srila Narada Muni took leave of him and vibrating on his Veena instrument, he left to wander at his free will. That's, that's the uh, important term here. This is a very uh, beautiful purport, Srila Prabhupada writes. He says, every living being is anxious for full freedom because that is his transcendental nature. And this freedom is obtained only through the transcendental service of the Lord. Illusioned by the external energy, everyone thinks that he is free, but actually 
he is bound up by the laws of nature. A conditioned soul cannot freely move from one place to another, even on this earth, what to speak of one planet to another. But a full-fledged free soul like Narada, always engaged in chanting the Lord's glory, is free to move not only on earth, but also in any part of the universe, as well as any part of the spiritual sky. We can just imagine the extent and unlimitedness of his freedom, which is as good as that of the Supreme Lord. Similarly, the association of the devotee is also free. One may be fortunate to have it or one may not have it, even after thousands of endeavors. Therefore, in all spheres of devotional service, freedom is the main pivot. Without freedom, there is no execution of devotional service. The freedom surrendered to the Lord does not mean the devotee becomes dependent in every respect. To surrender unto the Lord through the transparent medium of the spiritual master is to attain complete freedom of life. So that's our spiritual situation. By surrendering, we obtain this complete freedom. Sometimes uh, there's this idea that when we surrender to God or something that is like some autocrat, you know, controlling our lives, dictating our lives. Well, in one sense it is. I mean, you know, it's God. After all, you know, he's the supreme powerful being. And, you know, and who are we? We're very tiny, very minute beings. So therefore, we obviously have greatest, you know, awe and reverence, respect for, for God. But when one is in a completely purified state, there's an amazing thing that happens. That's called reciprocation. Because God isn't this sort of person up on a throne, you know, in the sky who's just kind of like handing down orders, you know, on burning tablets. Krishna is a very loving, beautiful, active Lord who has a loving relationship with every single one of us. There's a relationship of love unique to every living entity. And because Krishna so much values that relationship, when the living entity becomes dependent upon him, he also becomes dependent upon them. This is called love, reciprocation. This is described in the ninth canto Shim Bhagavan, just read one verse, 463, says, says, the Supreme Personality of Godhead said to the Brahman, I am completely under the control of my devotees. Indeed, I am not at all independent, because my devotees are completely devoid of material desire I sit only within the core of their hearts. What to speak of my devotee, even those who are the devotee of my devotees, are very dear to me. So there's this eternal, reciprocal, loving relationship between Krishna and his devotees. And that's the real state of freedom for all of us. Become free from this material nature and enter into spiritual relationship. Okay, so I should end there. Thank you so much. All glories to Shiva Prabhupada. And do we end, or do you have a question? Or uh, if there are any comments or questions, anyone has? We have a couple minutes, I guess. Anybody? Yes.
That's a that's a very good anxiety to have. That's a transcendental anxiety. We call it transcendental anxiety because you're concerned about the conditioned souls that they're not going to come to Krishna consciousness. That's a very very nice sentiment actually. I, I'm appreciating that. As for your question, it sometimes it does seem difficult, and you know it's it's hard for us to even imagine. But on the other hand, Srila Prabhupada came here alone with nothing, with a few dollars in his pocket and a couple uh, books in a trunk and made 5,000 disciples, 100 temples spread throughout the world, uh, distributed millions of books. Uh, books are published in, in over 100 languages now. Tremendous amount of growth in a short amount of years. Will this actually happen? Lord Chaitanya said it will. Lord Chaitanya said this chanting the holy name will spread to every town and village. And so that prediction is there. Now this is the age of Kali. And age of Kali is not a good time to be in. It's the age of quarrel and hypocrisy. We know there's so many difficulties here. And we see, we see examples of the age of Kali everywhere around us. However, there's also what's called the golden age of Kali. And a golden age is that few thousand years from Lord Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's appearance. It's almost like there's this go there will be a cessation in the influence of Kali for some time. It's kind of like while it's happening, at the same time, there'll be the growth and development of the Hare Krishna movement. And many, many people will become devotees and devotional service will be, you know, will be very prominent. So we're actually very hopeful. We're very hopeful that this is a wonderful opportunity. And, and you know, I've, often, I've seen, um, you know, been around since 1972. And, you know, for a while we had a lot of growth and it was very strong. The movement seemed to be expanding. Then it seemed like it kind of leveled off. Some of the older devotees remember that. And now it seems like things are really picking up again in many places. All over the world, this movement is growing. You know, there's a, like, you know, there's a thousand initiated devotees in China. And it's, and you know, and the movement's not even quite allowed, really, legally. You know, and what to speak of other places like that. I was talking to a person who's a, you know, he's one of the administrators, a regional secretary in the Ukraine. And I was asking him, well, you have a lot of devotees there, you know, Ukraine, you know, a little part of Russia. He says, we have about 5,000 initiated devotees, you know. So, I mean, it's like, yeah, there. I mean, there are devotees just everywhere. And, and the movement really is growing. And one thing that I see is, that's so encouraging is we see um, all of these sort of secondary activities, which are bringing people to more pious life and more readiness and openness to Krishna, like how popular yoga movements are today, and you know, everybody's into yoga or meditation. Vegetarianism is everywhere. You know, it's like, it, it's, it's, it's so common, and um, so many things like that. There's a lot of, all of these things are sort of in the mode of goodness. And when the mode of goodness becomes more prevalent, that gives us a ripe ground for people being open to Krishna consciousness. So I think we just have to look for those opportunities. There's always going to be a lot of people, you know, who are not going to take to Krishna consciousness. 
But remember Prabhupada said, if you're selling a jewel, a precious jewel like a diamond, you're not going to get a lot, so many buyers, right? Only a few people can afford that diamond. You know, so in that way, Krishna consciousness is the most precious jewel of philosophy. And so not everybody is going to take to it. Immediately. But yet we have so many wonderful opportunities, so we just have to keep persevering. Thank you, that's a very nice question. Yeah. Anything else? Okay. You should probably probably end. All glories to Srila Prabhupada. Yeah. Okay.